I think it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Tonight, school in the age of Omicron. What parents need to know ahead of tomorrow's return. Plus, here we go again. Another series of soakers heading for B.C. And it's a tough area already to deal with. Taking hit after hit, the newest setback facing several restaurants. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It will be an uneasy return to school Monday morning across the province as kindergarten to grade 12 students and staff resume in-person learning. Now this comes amid the rapid spread of the Omicron COVID-19 variant. Grace Key has more on what parents and teachers are bracing themselves for heading back to class. While students have been enjoying an extra week off from school, teachers have been learning about enhanced safety measures for Monday's return. They will vary in each district and school. Things such as having one-way flow to, to hallway traffic, um, things such as more frequent reminders of existing protocol, um, things such as limiting seating in cafeteria situations. Ashley McKenzie teaches French at a Surrey High School. She says more needs to be done, but funding seems to be an issue. There was pandemic funding that was available last year that isn't this year. So custodian uh, hours are, of course, not as high as they were at one point. Most of our classrooms don't have filters that filter out viruses. Um, to understand that our ventilation systems, although they may have been upgraded, are not upgraded to the extent that they're actually going to sanitize and clean the air that 30 of us are breathing at, at one time. So the, the funding remains an issue. Parents have also expressed concerns about the return to school. We know many schools were already doing virtual assemblies. They weren't allowing um, visitors into the school. And um, we know that the, that the mask has been uh, mandatory since um, school started. So um, I think that the parents were quite disappointed with that. We wanted to hear more um, about having air, air uh, filter units in classrooms like they have in Ontario. According to Health Canada, 39% of kids between 5 and 11 have gotten their first dose since approval in November. Pediatrician and UBC professor Dr. Rand Goldman has researched COVID hesitancy among parents. He urges them to talk to a health care provider about any concerns. And even healthy children can get complications of COVID. Actually, evidence from other countries showed that about 10% of children will have what's called long COVID, with results that include physical and mental health issues that are lingering for a long time. So any child that has COVID is one too many. Anxious times ahead for the more than 550,000 students who return to school on Monday. Grace Key, Global News. And Keith Baldry joins us. Keith, we know many young kids are heading back to class, not yet mm. having received a first dose of vaccine. Yeah, there was a big rush uh, to get kids vaccinated between the age of 5 and 11 when it came online on November 29th, Jordan. But it stalled basically in early December. It's been a bit of a grind to convince parents to get the kids age 5 to 11 uh, with their first dose. The numbers are going up about 4,000 a day out of 350,000 kids. Take a look at the stats here. As of last week, again, more than 138,000 have been vaccinated. That's just 40% though. And then you look at a regional breakdown. This sort of mirrors what we saw with the adults. Fraser uh, Health, 36% vaccinated. 
vaccination. Vancouver Island and Vancouver Coastal have the highest percentages, but then you take a look at the interior, 31%, and the north at just 24%. In fact, 18,500 kids still need to be vaccinated in the north. Less than 6,000 kids in the north have actually received one dose. So really a geographical discrepancy there. 211,000 in total still need to get that first dose. Interestingly enough, we've got a town hall meeting, a town hall uh, tomorrow night with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. They're expected to address this issue. They feel quite concerned about it. The hesitancy they're seeing amongst many parents around the province, not just in the interior in the north, but also in Metro Vancouver and parts of the island as well. They need to get uh, as many kids between the age of 5 and 11 uh, vaccinated. As you heard Dr. Goldman explain why, we'll have that town hall tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. All right, so you can catch that on BC One. Thanks, Keith. A petition has been launched by BCIT students calling on the school to delay the resumption of in-person learning. Now, so far, the student-led petition has garnered more than 3,000 signatures. Students say they are worried their health and safety will be compromised as Omicron spreads. And they want the school to consider delaying a return to class until at least the third week of January. BCIT has already delayed in-person learning by one week, with only a few programs returning last week. But as of Monday, students are expected to return in person, while other post-secondary institutions like UBC and Emily Carr have students learning virtually at least until the 24th. We all want to, you know, do our programs and continue learning. You know, the world can't just stop either. And we all understand that. But we want to do it in a way that makes us all feel safe at the same time. And... And we have the ability to do it online because we've been doing online for the majority of last year. A statement from BCIT says in part, student safety and well-being is a primary focus for BCIT. Our return to in-person learning aligns with the ministry and PHO guidance for post-secondary institutions. We have also heard from students who are eager to return on Monday. We recognize that in-person instruction is highly beneficial for both student learning and student mental health. For these reasons, it is a high priority to maintain access to in-person learning whenever possible. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's clear skies on the south coast because it is literally the calm before the storm. BC's River Forecast Center has issued a high stream flow advisory for the south coast ahead of a significant storm. Temperatures will rise this week. Add to that, moderate to heavy rain is expected. That all means the snowpack will melt at lower elevations and raise river levels. The forecast center says the conditions could lead to minor or even significant flooding, with a peak happening midweek. And this is potentially what we would consider one of the more worst case scenarios where you've had an extended period of, of several weeks of, uh, of cold temperatures uh, combined with uh, a low elevation snowpack developing. And we are ripe and ready to melt that with rising temperatures and then potentially heavy rainfall for Tuesday and Wednesday period. So uh, the highest risk Time period is going to be probably in the, the Wednesday through Thursday period. Uh, in, in terms of the actual exact locations, it's still just a little bit too early to say. It, it certainly is uh, a potentially strong storm arriving. Government will be uh, monitoring uh, the forecasts uh, closely, uh, at the same time ensuring that uh, any uh, necessary uh, uh, warnings around flood warnings or stream flow advisories are going out to affected regions 
uh, ensuring that uh, local governments are aware of the uh, the upcoming uh, uh, forecast and the potential uh, for some significant rain. At the same time, uh, they have the ability, government has the ability, working with local government, if sandbags are required, to ensure that they are getting to where they're needed. So, of course, all eyes will be on the forecast this week. Meteorologist Yvonne Schell is here with a closer look at the timeline of this next wave. Yvonne. Yeah, Jordan, good evening, everyone. We're tracking the first weather maker. It'll be a series of storms on deck as early as the morning hours and then continuing also with very windy conditions. And then in behind it, we've got a series of storms that'll parade right across the province. So this is a big concern because it'll be periods of rain heavy at times. One forecast model is showing us by Thursday we could see upwards of 100 millimeters. It's still a few days out, but the potentials there and we're anticipating a significant amount. BC River Forecast Centre High Stream Flow Advisory includes the island and along the south coast so we'll be watching closely over the next few days and it's really a concern because we've got high freezing levels close to 2,000 metres, we've got the periods of heavy rain, increased snowmelt and runoff and localized flooding is going to be possible. Now the timeline, Monday morning it'll begin, we'll see a series of systems, this will continue likely all the way towards our Thursday. It's going to be mild this week, I'll have more coming up very shortly. Jordan. All right, Yvonne, thank you. Highway 1 is still closed between Salmon Arm and Sycamus after a deadly crash last evening. The crash involving several semi-trucks, a cube van and other vehicles happened around 6 o'clock near Bernie Road. Police say the chain reaction crash was the result of a flat deck tractor trailer unit jackknifing and blocking all three lanes of the highway. One driver was killed when he slammed into the wreckage of another trailer. Six other people were taken to hospital. Port Moody police believe slick roads may have played a role in a crash that sent a transit bus into a ditch on the Barnett Highway this morning. Police say a westbound pickup driver lost control near Reed Point, crossed into the eastbound lanes and hit the bus. The force of the crash sent the bus into the ditch and onto its side. Police say there are no serious injuries, although one person was taken to hospital. Someone on board the bus used an emergency window to get out. We are still assessing the damage from the last storm to pummel the region, most notably to the seawalls in Vancouver and West Vancouver. They took a beating on Friday during a king tide. As Kamal Karamali reports, the concern is that our coastal infrastructure will only see more of these destructive storms in the future. Friday's storm packed a punch, pummeling Ambleside Park and flooding parts of West Vancouver. This is a very dangerous situation. And a section of the Stanley Park seawall shattered like broken glass. It literally looks like a bomb went off. Sunday, surveyors had not yet come to assess the damage. The park board ignoring Global News' questions on the delay, while the public ignored signs to stay off the seawall. I literally didn't even read the sign, to be honest. Even with a park ranger standing guard. The sea, I mean, take some pictures. But sites like these expect to be seen more often. The uh, sea level globally and along our coast is slowly, slowly rising. Yet another catastrophic result of climate change. The types of events that we saw on Friday are going to become more common and they're going to become more damaging because the sea will be higher when these king tides and the severe storms coincide. And it doesn't help that big logs like these right next to the seawall act like battering rams during a storm. 
All of it is something the Vancouver seawall wasn't built for when it was first constructed in 1917. They never contemplated that there would be the level of sea rise that we're starting to experience. It's not just this. The Fraser Valley submerged, the Coquihalla snapped, all during November's floods. Urban planner and developer Michael Geller says B.C. municipalities will have to start building cities with climate change in mind now. We have something called a flood construction level, which establishes how high habitable areas have to be. And we're slowly having to to raise those. The B.C. government has advised municipalities to plan for a sea level rise of 50 centimeters by 2050 and one meter by 2100, which means everything will have to change. The ferry building gallery in West Vancouver already being raised during its restoration. And some things like seawalls may be gone altogether. They could become a thing of the past. Um, You know, I hate to say it. It's a terrible thought to have. Kamal Karmali, Global News. And the rebuilding in Sumas Prairie is also just beginning, nearly two months after an atmospheric river triggered devastating flooding there. Today, the floodwaters may have receded, but the need to help reconstruct people's lives is greater than ever. Here's Global's Paul Johnson. This used to be my, my parents' bedroom, and there was a bathroom here and a closet here. Um, looks a lot different now. That would be the understatement of the new year. But that kind of outlook may be what's required to get through the slog ahead. Just as people like Kelly Hennessy finally started to make some headway recovering from the Fraser Valley flood disaster, along came the cold snap that set them back again. This used to be our sort of basement work work shed area. Um, But with the snow, we face a new challenge every day with the pumps either freezing and the lines freezing and we'll come back in the morning and we have water up to here. While the flood may have faded from the front page headlines, it's important to remember that there are still about 700 people in the eastern Fraser Valley still out of their homes. And this phase of the disaster is a slow motion ordeal. We had no idea we'd still be standing outside today. Just up the road, Victoria Kewitt is an organizer of the Yarrow Food Hub. They started out with the straightforward mission of providing meals to the sandbagging and rescue crews, morphed into a food bank for the newly homeless, and are now pivoting again. As we focus to rebuild and restructure, now we are looking for like larger items, dehumidifiers, more big commercial fans. The reality for those trying to rebuild in the valley now is just as they're in need of tools, materials, and components for furnaces and water heaters, the world's stalled supply chains have made them harder than ever to get. It is definitely far from over. Another cruel development is that just as people started to clean up, the freezing weather burst many of their water pipes. Yet another thing the Hennessy's had to deal with. So if you're warm, dry and comfortably housed somewhere and have any extra tools or materials, the Yarrow Food Hub will gladly take them. In Yarrow, Paul Johnson, Global News. And a reminder, Global BC and our sister stations are partnering for BC together in support of BC flood relief. Visit globalnews.ca slash bctogether to check out the groups stepping up to help 
and donate to an organization of your choice. Up next tonight, from restrictions to supply chain issues to staff shortages, PC restaurants have already had a tough go. Now several are dealing with another headache following the cold snap. And later, the unique items up for grabs as a so-called nerd bar prepares to close. After surviving almost 22 months of the pandemic, several B.C. restaurants are starting the new year with unexpected closures after burst pipes caused flooding during last month's cold snap. Ongoing supply chain issues mean extensive repairs will be delayed, and they may not be able to reopen for weeks. Kristen Robinson has more. Where there should be customers, blower fans are blasting and bags of damaged goods piling up. As Didi Mao Chinatown prepares for a costly restoration it wasn't expecting. There was just water flowing from every single angle. The day before New Year's Eve, Kim Tran got a frantic call from staff. The kitchen ceiling was falling. I still can't watch those videos. After fighting to stay open amid COVID, neighborhood decline and Omicron-related closures, a frozen pipe had burst upstairs, flooding her family-owned Vietnamese restaurant. I felt so defeated. Just the last two years of doing whatever was in my power to keep the business alive, stay afloat, and then that happened. Drowning in ankle-deep water, they grabbed brooms and formed an assembly line to sweep the deluge out. In mid-December, Mount Pleasant's Sprezzatura also submerged. The building's sprinkler system is above their oven, and one of the heads burst under low temperatures. We had to wait till 14 floors of water drained out of the sprinkler system. Draining them of a quarter of a million dollars in revenue and putting 35 employees out of work. The oven needs major repairs. The parts will take weeks to arrive. It was like a waterfall. Pipes froze and then burst at the Carvery Sandwich Shop. Merry Christmas. Flooding Brian Mendiola's popular Surrey restaurant. The damage much worse than predicted. With supply chain issues, repairs could take up to three months. My biggest fear is losing my current staff. We're just trying to survive. While all three owners have insurance, the industry is hoping patrons will support them as they work to get back in business. From a supply perspective, with plumbers and people to just respond to this, that's a lot of stress in the system right now. There's no way we're going to be able to survive another one or two months waiting for rebuilding. Like the others, Tran can't fathom losing her employees. She set up a GoFundMe to help support them while the doors are closed. The community response, giving her hope that Didi Mao can come back better. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A Langley equestrian was one of the few Canadians to be invited to participate in this year's famed Rose Bowl Parade. But she had to overcome several hurdles and not just COVID-19 travel protocols. Jenny Barnes was part of a group of Norwegian Fjord horse riders to walk the New Year's Day parade in Pasadena, California. It had been canceled the year before due to the pandemic, but returned under strict distancing and mask protocols. Getting to and from California was an ordeal in itself for Barnes. She had to travel alone with her horse, cross the border during extreme winter weather, and make sure she got her PCR test results in time. She said she's still recovering from the experience.
It's such an amazing opportunity and to go around what they call TV corner and to see all those fans and to know that your horse is doing amazing and taking it all in stride pun intended, um, is an amazing experience that I think every equestrian kind of dreams of. So I think I would be selfish to say I wouldn't do it again because it's such a great opportunity. Coming up, military help for a First Nation dealing with a major COVID outbreak. But the community says it's not enough and they continue to feel unsupported. We'll explain next. And nearly 20 people killed in what's being described as one of the worst fires in New York City in decades. A remote First Nation in Ontario is getting some military help, but not as much as they wanted. Bearskin Lake First Nation is about 600 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. More than half of its residents have tested positive for COVID-19. And nearly the entire community is in self-isolation. Global's David Aiken has more. On Saturday, three rangers from CFB Borden in southern Ontario flew in to Bearskin Lake for the day. They were there to assess what resources a full military deployment would need. The community asked for as many as 40 military personnel ready to stay for up to 14 days. They would have to come up with their own tents. Um, that's how bad it is uh, in this situation in my community. It's been a week since the chief declared a state of emergency and asked for military help. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that it's taken this long and so slow the progress that's been taken so far. But finally, on Sunday afternoon, the federal government said it would send in three Army Rangers now and another three in a day or two. A community spokesperson said they are disappointed with the response and still feel overwhelmed and unsupported. The soldiers the community had asked for are needed to spell off exhausted volunteers and community leaders like the chief who tested positive himself for COVID-19 on Saturday. I'm okay at the moment, but I wasn't feeling too, uh, too good this morning, but I think I'm starting to feel okay now. The chief got sick even though he's had his booster. In fact, 80% in the community are fully vaccinated. Because of that, there have been no serious illness, at least so far, that required medical evacuations. Still, with all but 20 or 30 of the community's 400 residents in self-isolation, there is an urgent need for people who can supply wood, food, and medicine. Bearskin Lake, though, may just be the first of several remote northern communities asking for the military's help. Already, we're hearing from some remote northern Manitoba First Nations that say they'll be overwhelmed unless the Canadian forces shows up. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. New York City is grieving tonight after 19 people, including nine children, died in what the mayor calls one of the worst fires in modern times. Dramatic video from Citizen App shows the fire breaking out on the second floor of an apartment building in the Bronx. The fire began just before the lunch hour and consumed an apartment on the second and third floors. 63 people were rushed to hospital, many of them in cardiac arrest, suffering because of the thick smoke that filled the hallways all the way up to the 19th floor. Black, black smoke, I can barely see from me to you. Just hear people banging on everybody's door, saying it's a fire, it's a fire. So I ain't paying no mind. But then when we opened that door, the smoke just hit us. And we ran to the hallway to the exit. And I just panicked and I got scared. 
and I looked out the back of the window and that's where we see like the fire just fighting outside the window and they have to break open the windows to let people out. This is a horrific, horrific, painful moment for the city of New York and the impact of this fire is going to really bring a level of just pain and despair in our city. The numbers are horrific. Uh, it started in a malfunctioning electric space heater. Uh, that was the cause of the fire. The fire consumed that apartment that is on two floors and part of the hallway. The smoke spread throughout the building, uh, thus the tremendous loss of life and other people fighting for their lives. Breaking news, comedian and actor Bob Saget has died. He was perhaps best known for his role as Danny Tanner in the 90s sitcom Full House. This afternoon, he was found dead in an Orlando, Florida hotel room. He'd been on tour doing stand-up. Cause of death is so far unknown, but police say they found no signs of foul play or drug use. Bob Saget was 65 years old. Meteorologist Yvonne Shell's detailed forecast is coming right up. Plus, the bald eagle that has a Coast Guard crew to thank for saving its life. A bald eagle has a new lease on life after being rescued by a Coast Guard crew on B.C.'s central coast. Earlier this month, the team from the Sandspit Lifeboat Station took the majestic bird of prey on board after finding it in distress. The bald eagle was breathing heavily and not moving. The crew was able to lift it into their boat and take it ashore. With a blanket and some TLC, the eagle was transferred to a bird sanctuary on Haida Gwaii. The good news, it has since recovered and been released. Well done. All right, a beautiful day on the south coast, but nothing lasts forever, and apparently it only lasts a day here, Yvonne. Yeah, we were tracking snow not too long ago, it feels like it, and now with temperatures warming up in the next few days, we are looking at rain and a significant amount, so be prepared heading out for work and school tomorrow. We are going to have that rain. It'll be heavy at times and windy for areas that are closer to the water. We're currently sitting at 2 degrees. We've got an easterly wind. It's light at 9 kilometers per hour. Overnight tonight, we'll continue to see dry conditions. It'll be chilly, though. We'll be around the freezing mark. We'll see that for the early morning hours. Now, the rain starts to develop as early as the morning hours, so you'll need your rain gear heading out the door, and then through the afternoon, highs will be closer to 8 degrees, but the winds are going to pick up anywhere between 40 and potentially up to 60 kilometers per hour. That's the first weather maker, and then it's a series of systems that'll parade right across the province, and this is a big concern. Here's the future cast as we put it into play. We're still seeing snow along the northern half of the province. It's inland. Through the morning hours, there's that wave of moisture. It is going to pick up, and the potential for snow fall is going to develop for the southern interior and we're looking ahead towards Tuesday evening. Now the following areas along the northern half of the province, it's inland that's still seeing upwards of 30 centimeters continuing through the day, then the potential for the risk of freezing rain and the wind chills, that cool Arctic air feeling closer to minus 20. It's windy though along Haida Gwaii and the northern half for coastal areas where we're seeing the winds between 90 and potentially upwards of 100 kilometers per hour. Rain forecast this is taken from tomorrow leading in towards Thursday by the evening hours. This is just one model. I anticipate
anticipate these are actually a bit on the low side, but we could see upwards of 100 millimeters of rain. And the high stream flow advisory, the following areas in yellow, so that's along the island and the south coast, all included within that. Now we'll be keeping a close eye as the freezing level is getting closer. It's rising to around 2,000 meters, and we are going to be looking at the potential for rapid snowmelt in addition to the heavy rain. So stay tuned over the next two days, but be prepared for the potential for localized flooding. Northern half of the province, it's coastal areas, very windy at times, gusts of up to 110 kilometers per hour. Inland, we'll see that snow and then changing over to rain with the risk of freezing rain. Much of the central interior, some breaks, similar for the southern half of the province. Interior, we'll be looking at that snowfall through the day on Tuesday and then heavier at times by Tuesday night. South coast, be prepared. It is going to be blustery. A soak over the next few days, a number of systems that are going to move in. However, it is going to be mild. We'll see highs anywhere between 8 to 10 degrees as our daytime highs. It's just overnight and leading in towards tomorrow morning that it'll still be chilly with temperatures starting off at zero. Jordan? All right, we've been warned. Thanks, Yvonne. Well, many people spent time this past week digging out from multiple snowstorms. In Kelowna, they've brought in some rules and big tools to clear the streets. Here's Kimberly Davidson. Downtown Kelowna is a busy and noisy place at night these days. City crews are working overnights to clear massive amounts of snow off the streets. Uh, tonight we've got two graders, uh, we've got probably four one-tons, a couple of what they call trackless, like small articulated machines that can move on the sidewalks, and uh, probably a dozen staff out here. From 9 at night until 7 in the morning, dump truck after dump truck is being loaded up with snow. It takes about 45 seconds to load up a dump truck. Hundreds of loads taken in a nine-hour shift to the Apple Bowl, where it's being stored for the winter. A parking ban remains in place between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. for the downtown core and the Pandozi area, but not everyone has gotten the memo. We've had to tow a few cars. Uh, we just pull them out of the parking lane and we move them maybe a block away and put them in a parking lot so the, the owners can pick them up. City crews believe the cleanup will take a couple more days and nights to complete at an estimated cost of $50,000 per shift. Kimberly Davidson, Global News. Well, it's nice of them not to impound the cars. Mm -hmm. Barry, what's ahead in sports? Well, the uh, Canucks are on their way to start their road trip, and it looks like they're going to have... Uh, their best players there. So we'll fill you in on uh, who made the trip down to Miami. Also, final Sunday of the NFL regular season, Seahawks last game. And, of course, they played one of their best games of the year. Now that they're not going to the playoffs, <laughs> where was this a couple of weeks ago? And also, for uh, tennis fans, a terrific win uh, down in Australia for the Canadian men winning the ATP Cup. So we'll show you some of that as well. All right, thanks, Barry. Also coming up, sending baseball gear to kids in Mexico. A BC group has been collecting items for years, but now there's a problem. We'll explain how you can help. We may be in the height of ice hockey season, but for years, a group of B.C. sports enthusiasts has been focused on the baseball diamond and trying to bring the game they love to kids who can't afford to simply play ball. Here is Jay Durant with tonight's This is B.C. So this is about half the gear that we've collected. 
The other half is at a different location. It's taken two years to gather all of this. $15,000 worth of equipment, over 100 gloves, dozens and dozens of bats, cleats, balls, helmets, catcher's gear, and uniforms for at least six teams. All right, RJ, let's start loading up some bags here. Eight years ago, Mike Canada was studying Spanish in Puerto Escondido, Mexico, and noticed there was no place for local kids to play baseball. They don't have the league. Uh, they don't have the finances to uh, support their their young athletes, and they just don't have the resources. Now, with the support of Ladner Minor Baseball, they're hoping to launch a free two-week camp just like this. Canada Day, four other coaches and five support staff plan to bring the donated gear to Puerto Escondido in March and introduce 75 kids to the game, some who have never even caught a ball before. RJ and I are both teachers, so we see it on a daily basis the discrepancies in between opportunities kids have and if you look down at it we're you know a country like Mexico and we're incredibly lucky in Canada these kids aren't going to have those opportunities and to think that uh, you know there's kids who just frankly aren't even exposed to it they're not even aware of what team sports can bring to your life um, it inspired me right away there's the mound it's not the best condition but there's still a lot of work to do. Mike and his team are paying to fix up the field and practice plans with local coaches need to be drawn up. We have about 400, maybe 500 baseballs going down. But the biggest hurdle right now is shipping and the cost of getting all this gear down to Mexico. The shipping, uh, the cheapest price we've we've got is $8,000 with the most expensive going up to 18,000. Fundraising is ongoing and there's a GoFundMe set up. They're hoping all this work doesn't go to waste and dozens of kids who couldn't otherwise afford this opportunity finally get a chance to play some ball. If we can change a couple kids' lives and make them feel part of something, then we've done a good job. Jay Durant, Global News. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that people need to know about, email your ideas to thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Well, the break is almost over. The Vancouver Canucks are getting ready to play again. We will hear from birthday boy, Coach Boudreaux, up next. BC's COVID-19 Town Hall. Your questions answered by Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. Email questions at globalnews.ca and tune in Monday on BC One, CKNW, or stream on... Join us in supporting British Columbians who need our help. Global BC, 980 CKNW, AM 730, and Global Okanagan are partnering for BC Together in support of BC flood relief. Visit globalnews.ca slash bctogether to donate to an organization of your choice that are helping communities in need. Celebrating its 20th year, don't miss the Dine Out Vancouver Festival. Over 300 restaurants across Metro Vancouver are offering exclusive fixed-price three-course meals, foodie events including Indigenous chef collaborations, tasting tours, and more. If you wanna know, it's on the hub. If you wanna show, it's on the hub. If you wanna go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. Canucks are on the move after a lot of downtime, Barry. Mm -hmm. They are very pleased to be uh, making their way down to South Florida. Thanks very much, Jordan. The Canucks will have Elias Pettersson available on their five-game road trip starting Tuesday in Florida. The Canucks confirmed today Pettersson was on the team charter that flew to Miami today. Pettersson was placed in COVID protocol last week. Bruce Boudreau is hoping he will have both Pettersson and Brock Besser in the lineup against the Panthers. But as we all know, in today's world, you have to be ready for anything. It's something I'm 
totally new with. I mean, I wasn't, uh, uh, when you're out for the last year, uh, you didn't have to deal with the pandemic. So, I mean, uh, coming in here and having to deal with it, it's, uh, it's, it's new. And you think you have a healthy lineup and then you go home and, and you find out uh, two guys have tested positive. It is what it is. And uh, uh, if you got a bump in the road, you just got to make sure that uh, uh, you get over it and, and, and go and push forward and not dwell on it and not uh, worry about it. It's just, uh, it's something that's there. So we don't worry about it. Meanwhile, the uh, baby Canucks fell 4-0 this afternoon to Bakersfield. Bakersfield has won the first three games of the four-game series. Just 16 skaters for the Canucks. Many players loaned to the big Canucks taxi squad. Same two teams tomorrow, 7 o'clock in Abbotsford. The Seahawks closed out a very disappointing season today in Arizona against the playoff-bound Cardinals. Seahawks lost five games this year by three points or less. And for most of the season, have looked like a mediocre team. But uh, Russell Wilson's finger finally seems to be 100% as the season ends. And he took the, uh, look, they took the offense, and they look pretty good today in the desert. Maybe he should stick around a few more seasons in Seattle. Pete Carroll and Wilson, hey, they're always pumped up, but the Cardinals motivated to win a victory, and they could win the NFC West title. Tough start for the Hawks. Opening moments, Wilson stripped of the football, scooped and scored by Zach Allen. So 7-0 Cardinals, 12 seconds into the game. But the Seahawks respond. Wilson going deep to Tyler Lockett. He's got it inside the 10, takes it in for the touchdown. And as we said, Wilson throwing the ball much better today. That finger, I think, is finally healed. 7-7, second quarter. Seahawks with another nice drive, capped by another Wilson to lock at touchdown. 17-10, Seattle at the half. But the Cardinals got two quick touchdowns early in the third. Wilson's pass is picked off by Jalen Thompson. Takes it back inside the five. The cards would punch it in from there, and they led 24-17. But the Seahawks respond again. Of course, they put up 51 last week against Detroit, and their offense was in fine form. Wilson's third touchdown pass of the game to Freddie Swain, a 25-yarder, tied it at 24. And then after the cards muffed a punt, Seahawks take the lead, and it's Wilson who does it all himself, dives in for the touchdown, 31-24 Seahawks, such an exhilarating game, but it was offset by a very serious injury to safety Quandre Diggs. It was a leg or a knee injury. They never did show it, but Diggs very emotional as he is carted off the field. We hope he's all right. Seahawks, meanwhile, put this one in a way, and it's Rashad Penny, who's been incredible the past five games. This is a 62-yard touchdown gallop for Penny. He had 190 yards today, a career high, 671 in the past five games for six touchdowns, and the Seahawks win 38-30. They look great. We'll see if that's Wilson's last game as a Seahawk, but he's still got it, and I got a feeling he's sticking around. Also in the NFC, Rams and 49ers, San Francisco needing a win to guarantee a playoff spot. Rams led 17-0 in the first half, but the Niners roar back. Receiver Debo Samuel is the one who throws the touchdown pass to Juan Jennings, ties it at 17. Rams took the lead with two to go, but the Niners tied it with a drive with no timeouts. Jimmy Garoppolo to Juan Jennings for his second touchdown. We need overtime tied at 24. Now the Niners got a field goal in their first possession, but the Rams get a chance to answer 
with a uh, field goal or a touchdown to win it, but Matt Stafford is picked off, and the 49ers are playoff bound, a thrilling 27-24 win over the Rams. So this is the way the NFC wildcard matchups look. No dates or times yet. It'll be Philadelphia at Tampa Bay, Tom Brady and company. San Francisco will take on Dallas, and it'll be Arizona and the Rams, another NFC West battle. Green Bay Packers get the first round bye. Now in the AFC, all the Indianapolis Colts had to do to clinch a playoff spot was beat the league's worst team, the Jacksonville Jaguars. But it was a disaster for the Colts. The Jags not only beat them, they beat them handily. Trevor Lawrence with his second touchdown pass of the game, a brilliant catch by Marvin Jones Jr. 26-11, Jags win. They eliminate the Colts from the playoffs, and Indy just absolutely choked their playoff chances away. So that opened the door for the Steelers and Ravens. The winner pretty much clinches a playoff spot in the AFC. Ben Roethlisberger, likely his last season in the NFL, finds Abbotsford's Chase Claypool for the touchdown late in the fourth. Steelers go up 13-10, but Baltimore tied it, so we go to overtime. Fourth down for the Steelers. They need a win to get in the playoffs. The tie is no good, so they go for it on fourth and eight, and Big Ben converts to keep their season alive. And it sets up a game-winning field goal attempt from Chris Boswell, and the Steelers pull it out as that is good. 16-13 the final. They'll go to the playoffs as long as the Chargers and Raiders don't finish in a tie. And those two teams on the field right now in Vegas. Winner gets in. If they tied, they would both get in. Hmm, can you say conspiracy? Only one tie in the NFL season, so the odds are long. But we are in Vegas. David Carr to Hunter Renfro gave Vegas a 10-0 lead. But the Chargers got a pair of touchdowns from their star running back, Austin Eckler. One on the ground. This 14-yard pass from Justin Herbert. It's 14-10, late second quarter. We'll have the AFC wildcard matchups tonight at 11 because they're not set quite yet. Dennis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime have always had the potential to be top players in men's tennis. They are both world-ranked in the top 15, which is pretty darn impressive already. Both are still young. Felix is 21, Dennis is 22, and overnight they played some of their best pressure tennis ever, knocking off Spain in the final of the ATP Cup team competition in Sydney, Australia. And you'd think after performances like that, it would give them the confidence to take that next step into the top eight, where they are a threat to win on a regular basis. Felix leading out Team Canada, which has basically been a two-man team, Felix and Dennis. Shapovalov up first, took on Pablo Carina Busta. Dennis may have won this match in the opening game, which lasted 14 minutes, eight deuces. He fought off five break points. Dennis played the pressure points so well in this match and all week, really. Shapo also bringing that beautiful one-handed backhand, rips the winner, and he takes it 6-4, 6-3 to give Canada the 1-0 lead. So now it's OJ Aliasim's turn, taking on the very scrappy Roberto Bautista Agut. This was also a battle, but like Dennis, Felix rose to the occasion on the key points, crushes the inside-out forehand winner, took the opening set in a tie-break. Second set after Felix was broken, he will break right back. That's the sign of a good player. Punishing ground strokes, finishes with another winner, led 5-4. And then we go to match point. And the big serve is returned long and let the celebration begin. Canada wins the ATP Cup, first time ever. And you could just see the growth of these two young Canadian stars. We hope that translates into a long run for each at the Australian Open, which begins a week from today in Melbourne. 
NBA today, Raptors taking on New Orleans. Toronto going for a sixth straight win, playing much better now that their top players are healthy. And it doesn't hurt to have Fred Van Vliet, who went off for 37 last game. How about that deep three ball to tie it at 99 all in the late going? And then moments later, Raptors steal it. Van Vliet spots up behind the arc, hits another three. 32 for Van Vliet today. He's averaged 31 points per game. During the last six, Canadian Chris Boucher seals it, tapping in the miss. And the Raptors do get their sixth straight win, 105-101 over New Orleans. Toronto now 20-17, seventh place in the Eastern Conference. And final round of the Century Tournament of Champions, 38-man field from Maui. No Canadians this week. Just a barrage of birdies, especially from the leaders. World number one, John Rahm, a birdie at 11. Stays close to leader Cameron Smith of Australia, but Smith... Just kept on answering anytime Rom got close. The drivable par 4 14th. Well, Smith drives it. That's from 284 out, runs it onto the green. He would two putt that for a birdie. Now, Rom birdied the 18th, meaning Smith needed to knock in this three and a half footer for the birdie in the win, and he does put it in. The winning score of 34 under par is the lowest ever in a 72-hole PGA tournament, and he won by just one stroke, but they really ripped it up in Maui. Pretty amazing. All right, thanks, Barry. Weird memorabilia that could be yours if the price is right. Up next. Vancouver's Stormcrow Alehouse is permanently closing later this month, and the popular nerd bar is selling off a few favorites. Have a look. Some of the memorabilia up for grabs. The biggest Star Wars prize of them all, a life-size custom-made Stormcrow Ranker head <laughs> for $25,000. Han Solo in Carbonite could be yours for fifteen grand. The Stormcrow's entrance TARDIS is for sale for five grand. While the Crocade 3000 full-size arcade machine is listed at 3000, Stormcrow says it is open to offers. The pandemic, supply chain disruptions, staff shortages, and SkyTrain construction all led to the demise of the Stormcrow Alehouse. The original Stormcrow Tavern on Commercial Drive closed in April of 2020. Something for man caves and woman caves everywhere, I suppose. <laughs> and nerd caves, apparently. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> They're proud of that. Yvonne, final look at the weather? Uh, rain begins tomorrow morning. It'll be heavy at times. It'll be waves. We'll see a number of systems. This continues all the way in towards our Thursday. A heads up, there is the potential to see localized flooding, and that freezing level is rising over the next few, so stay tuned. And that is tonight's news hour. Thanks for watching. We're all back at 11. Hope you can join us then. Good night.